Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode is the first of two discussion episodes that we're going to dedicate to Chapter 2 of Peace. Before we begin, though, we have uh, an announcement. I think what to us at least actually feels like a pretty big announcement, which is that you, the listeners to this podcast network, have gotten us to another Patreon goal. And so we are right now in the middle of doing an entire bonus series on the short H.P. Lovecraft novel at the Mountains of Madness. We're about halfway through. These episodes are available right now. They're available you know, on Patreon to Patreon supporters at any level. So if you're not already with us and this is a book that interests you, this is a book that entices you, we hope you will check that out. And we also just want to say a huge thanks to all of the supporters who got us to this point. This really has been a big deal for us. Yeah, it really has been. Thank you so much. We're so excited about this uh, at the Mountains of Madness coverage. I'm really enjoying what we've been doing so far. And uh, this is something I've been looking forward to for a really long time, like since we started the network, probably. (laughs) And it's great to finally reach this point. Yeah, I almost couldn't believe it. I mean, I've been giddy working on this. It's just so awesome. And one of the other things that's exciting about hitting this goal is that we now get to have a vote on what comes next, right? What our next bonus series goal is going to be. We're going to have that vote in January. And so, you know, that's another reason to join us on Patreon. You get to have your say in what that next goal will be. But all right, let's uh, let's talk about our plan for this pair of episodes. So this is a very big chapter. <laughs> We've mentioned that many times while going through it. It's a very big chapter. So we need to break this discussion into two parts. And so we're devoting this first episode entirely to the fairy tale about Princess Alaya. Uh, and then we'll do everything else in two weeks. Uh, so these episodes, they may be unbalanced in terms of how much we're trying to do, also maybe how long they are. But this seemed like a sizable chunk that we could do on its own. So let's get into it. So Brandon, where do you want to start with talking about, with thinking about this fairy tale? Yeah. I I mean, as you said, Glenn, this is just an extremely long and complex chapter. And it, it might be the longest chapter of the book, though chapter four is close to chapter two in length, which I don't know, I guess that means we'll do like eight instead of nine episodes <laughs> on it, though we'll see. But you know, what this really suggests to me in terms of just the amount of space that this takes up, almost a third of the whole novel, is that uh, Olivia is a very significant figure to Weir, especially young Weir. And that working out what his time with her meant, both in terms of his immediate past and how this relationship with her impacts his future, that's all pretty important stuff. You know, as a reminder, before we really launch into this, uh, and I've completely ignored your prompt to get started here, but uh, (laughs) as a reminder to our listeners, if if you're just jumping in on the discussion episodes and you haven't gone through the recaps with us, uh, a few years prior to his stay at Aunt Olivia's house, Weir was involved in some sort of tussle with Bobby Black, who eventually died from his injuries. And so Weir is maybe working out his culpability. And I'd even go so far as to say that this chapter has a theme about God's providence, that is God's plan, and how this relates to Weir being at least partially culpable in the death of a child, his age, you know, we're thinking if God has a plan, how am I actually responsible for what I do either by omission, which is to say what I don't do or by commission. And and so I think that we are sort of elliptically is confronting his painful past and that this 
moment in time this summer where he's abandoned by his parents really sets up what I think is going to be a pretty painful future as well. And he does this in a weird way by reminiscing about Aunt Olivia Suter. So there's a lot really going on in this chapter. That's a kind of a brief overview of what I think we're going to be uncovering in, in this episode as we go through the fairy tale, as you mentioned, and other elements. But there's one thing I do want to point out before we get started, which is to have us kind of continually thinking about as we talk about this chapter, how Weir is really left without a father figure. And maybe that colors a lot of why he thinks about suitors and kings and and that sort of stuff, as we'll see in chapter two as well. So yeah, this episode, as you said, Glenn, we're going to be focusing on Olivia, the suitors, the, fa- the first fairy tale, and the next chapter, we're going to be doing a lot of miscellaneous stuff and... Uh, Really, that's going to be the second episode. I mean, there's a lot to cover in this chapter besides (laughs) just the fairy tale and the suitors. So, yeah, let's just get started now. So before we get into the three suitors in the fairy tale, we should just pause for a second to talk about Olivia herself, because Olivia is, as we pointed out in the recap, uh, a kind of culture of one in Cashinsville. Hey, she's also the named person that is the title of this chapter. You know, for instance, uh, you know, as a culture of one, Olivia brings in academic magazines for the library. She raises and breeds dogs. She's a small business owner. She's somewhat self-reliant, you know, even if that means eating pickles for dinner. And she even uses her trust, which I suspect she has, and also her earnings to pay other women to work in her house. She's unmarried, and so she has a lot of suitors. But even though all this is kind of factually the case, she is primarily presented to us in the text through her relationships with other men. And she does, I'll point out here, have two really wonderful interactions with women, uh, Eleanor Bold and M. Lorne. And in these interactions, to me, she seems more enlivened. She's less antagonistic than she appears to be with the men. Also, you know, we can't avoid pointing out here that she is also super into shinwazari, that is Chinese culture and Chinese artifacts, even if they're kind of uh, fake or made up. So that's my sense of Olivia. That's my brief spiel on her as just a a person in this chapter, kind of apart from how she's subjectively presented to us. So what I'd really like to do before we move on is, Glenn, I'd really like to hear your thoughts and your impressions about Olivia based more on the facts of the text than on the subjective lens of Weir. Right, because this lens that we see her through, this lens of Weir, you know, is the lens of an eight-year-old, but then also filtered through the lens of an old man reflecting on what it was like to be uh, eight or or maybe nine at this point, spending, you know, at least in terms of this chapter, because we don't really get an end, actually, to the time that he spends with Olivia. We don't really know how that ends yet, but, you know, it's summertime is what we see. He's spending this summer with his aunt, and we don't really see him doing anything with his aunt except as it relates to the suitors. And so I think a big part, perhaps, of why so much of this is actually about the suitors is that, uh, you know, at least an inference that we can make, this might not stand up to a whole lot of scrutiny. So let me, uh, I don't know, submit this for your approval, Brandon. (laughs) But it might just be that Olivia doesn't hang out with him. Right. That he what he is doing as a eight or a a nine year old living with his aunt because his parents needed to go to Europe to avoid uh, uncomfortable social situations because 
Weir is in some way at least uh, a contributing factor, if not responsible for the death of another boy in their social circle, uh, that what he's doing is mostly sitting in his bedroom and reading books and then also maybe going out and uh, we know he's looking through the window of his house and feeling upset that he can't be in his house. He seems maybe to play with some other boys, though it's not clear that he likes that or that it is happening very often. And so I think he's just maybe sitting around by himself with books a lot. And in fact, he feels a lot like Tackman Babcock, right? From from the Island of Dr. Death and other stories in that in that way, that books are keeping him company. But when he does actually interact with other people, it is because Olivia needs to take him with her when she's going on these dates with her, her suitors because she can't leave him home alone, uh, particularly at night, or if she's going very far away, like, you know, going out to Eagle Rock, for example. Uh, and so that's why we get these these stories. I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I also feel on some level that Olivia uses Weir Den to like distance herself from the suitors. And that's something we've brought up a lot in the in the recap episodes. And and as I said before, another reason why I think these suitors are so important to the young Weir is that his father has abandoned him in a, in a time of crisis and that these men are also using young Weir to get to Olivia. And so they're giving him attention. They're giving him gifts. They're trying to gain his approval in order to show Olivia that they can hang with her lifestyle on some level. And I think that's also another really important part of why the suitors stand out to Weir at this point in his life, as opposed to like, hey, my aunt taught me a lot about dog breeding and painting China. Um, we we only really see one moment where Weir really individually interacts with Olivia or has a moment of kind of um, intimacy or closeness with her when she shows him her scrapbook and all of her kind of Chinese uh, secrets and inspirations. So that's that's another maybe part of what's going on with Olivia and the lens of Weir. Right. And so just to to get back to your real question, Brandon, which is, hey, what do you think about Olivia? Like what stands out about Olivia? (laughs) Well, one, as I said, in the recap, I think she's awesome, right? She's someone I would want to hang out with. Um, You know, I don't know that I'd be lining up to be one of these suitors necessarily, right? But she's someone that uh, I would enjoy hanging out with at, you know, whatever the, you know, one or two local bars in Cashinsville are. They've, well, I guess it's actually... um, prohibition right now. So never mind, scratch all of that, I suppose. <laughs> right. But she has all these cool hobbies. She's interested in, in the world in ways that her neighbors, uh, you know, the people in this community don't seem to be. And she's really a, a force in the, in the world. We're also told, you know, repeatedly that she's extraordinarily beautiful, which is perhaps something that also lets her live this lifestyle in, in, in some way. But she doesn't actually seem like she belongs in Cashinsville, right? Like there's a reason that I start immediately joking about hanging out with her at a bar because she feels to me like a character who here in what is probably 1923, I guess, uh, that she seems like she belongs at a speakeasy in Manhattan or, you know, maybe Chicago, right? That she doesn't belong in Cashinsville. And we know that, in fact, she went to college in New York. She went to college on Long Island. She went to Adelphi, but came home. And I I wonder why she did that. Why did she move back to Cashinsville? Did she have to? Or, you know, is it the case that she actually likes Cashinsville in ways that I don't sort of expect that she would? This is your classic uh, big fish in a small pond sort of situation, I think, where the things that make you unique and special, the 
dreaming and idealization of the big city and how you're going to fit in there and how you're like the people there. When you're in a small town and kind of collecting all the material objects like magazines or you have the right taste in music that you expect will match up with people in the city that are more your type. When you get there, you find now you're a small fish in a big pond uh, rather than a big fish in a small <laughs> pond. And that that is that is has its own sort of destabilizing effects. So I suspect she might have come back because she liked her status in Cashinsville and her distinction there rather than being just one among many. And I also wonder, based on what we see of Eleanor Bold and the way she cares for her father, the absence of Weir's grandfather, that perhaps uh, Olivia's father might have been dying or something and she had to come home, though. I'm not sure about that. The timeline isn't clear and we don't really know anything about Dennis's paternal grandfather. And so maybe we'll learn more about that. And and we can talk about what this king might mean when we get to the fable in just a few minutes. Yeah, I gave a lot of thought to the timeline here and thinking about like what would be the family pressures that might make her have to come back to Cashinsville. But my understanding of the timeline, at least right now, and yeah, we should we should put a caveat on that to say that we haven't read the whole book. And so we're not totally clear. But I do think that when we see her at the the birthday party in chapter one, where Bobby Black is is injured, falling down the stairs, uh, that's that's Weir's fifth birthday party, that we know that grandfather's already dead at that point, and so is grandmother. All the grandparents are both dead at that point. And I think that uh, Olivia must have been home from Adelphi at that point, That was, but that was still a, a student. And so when we are with her here in, in chapter two, which is three or four, I'm going to surmise four. I think that Weir is probably more likely nine than eight, although I think I've been defaulting to calling him eight. I suspect he's more likely nine at this point. Uh, so let's just say it's four years later. So she's been out of college for two or three years is my guess right now. And so it wasn't that her father or her mother, either of his par parents summoned her home because I think they have been dead for a little while already. But there is also this issue of the the money, right? That she is in some way financially dependent on her older brother, which is to say Weir's father. And look, they've got enough money that they can just decide to go live in Europe for like a long period of time. They don't have jobs they go to, right? They're, they have money uh, that comes from owning the land, maybe some other things. You know, we've been trying to put together a picture of, of that, but don't have that complete yet either. But so it might be that there was some reason to come back to town in order to have money, but that that pressure would have come from her older brother and not from her father. But it is also possible, too, that she just didn't want to get a job, right? That if she was going to stay in Manhattan <laughs> or stay in New York, I should say, after finishing college, that she would have had to get some kind of job doing something. And maybe she didn't want to do that because here in Cashinsville, she doesn't have any kind of job, right? She just she does do things for money, but she doesn't have a job that she has to go to. So there's not anyone she's beholden to. And that is, I think, definitely something that we can say about Olivia is that she does not want to be beholden to anyone, right? She wants to be the boss of herself. Yeah, I think that that's all True. And I agree with that. I think her being in Cashinsville affords her uh, an opportunity to live life the way she prefers. And it gives her a sense of freedom. Yet she's still pursued by these men. So we should talk about the suitors here. There are three of them presented to us in this chapter. The first that we get introduced to is Professor Peacock. He's 
an anthropologist or a historian or something along those lines from the nearby university 35 miles away. The second is James McAfee. He's the owner of the town's sole and thriving department store. And then the third is Stuart Blaine. He owns the bank and a bunch of farms and land, and he's just wealthy. So what we're going to do now is talk about each suitor and point out a few things that maybe flow from their introductions in the text itself. Then we'll take a look at the fairy story and see if we can't discern who was who and what we can expect maybe from the text going forward. I also want to point out here, structurally speaking, that all of these episodes with the suitors follow a kind of similar format or template. There's the introduction, then an excursion of a kind, and then we get Weir's excess thoughts that may have resulted uh, from his thinking about these excursions and the suitors. And all of these suitors also bring up these senses of history, maybe not personal history, but history or historiography that's about a world before us, before Weir. And it, it brings all these different ideas up for Weir about the world in, in one sense or another. We're going to save that kind of structural idea or concept to the second episode because there's a lot about history in this chapter that, that we need to cover. So let's start with Professor Peacock. Let's look at how Professor Peacock is given us to in the text. So he shows up first in a parenthetical clause while Weir is thinking about how the trees and the rocks of Cashinsville, of the Cashinsville wilderness or natural land, are like maidens and templars. Professor Peacock shows up in Weir's memory, basically, to remind Weir that people have made weapons out of those rocks. And then we move into the scene about preparing for a picnic. So, Glenn, what are your impressions of Professor Peacock, especially with an eye towards, you know, like what he brings out of Olivia and what Weir notices also or pays attention to in their interactions, uh, particularly with regards to the excursion? I mean, you know, we see the language game that they play and how neologisms get going, but there's a lot more going on here. Well, I think language is really a key to Professor Peacock and, and in particular, the relationship that he has with Olivia, that of the three suitors or the stories that we get about each suitor of them, this story, the story of Professor Peacock is the one that has the most dialogue between Olivia and the suitor. Uh, Stuart Blaine talks a lot, but boy, he's making a lot of speeches and doesn't really seem to listen to Olivia or talk with her or leave any space for anyone else to say anything, uh, perhaps especially uh, recipe or, or rice pie. We still don't, <laughs> we still haven't settled on that yet. And McAfee, we get the sense that they maybe have some kind of, di you know, dynamic there as well, but we don't get a lot of it narrated. Whereas with Professor Peacock, we actually get, you know, direct speech dialogue reported by Weir in this very bantery way that, you know, would fit right at home in The Empire Strikes Back or something, This or, or moonlighting, right? A kind of uh, almost antagonistic <laughs> flirting, a kind of will they, won't they? But of course, definitely they will, except, well, we know from the fairy tale that definitely they won't, right? But that on its own is something that interests me if we're thinking about Weir as the person who's telling this story, that I think that subconsciously, perhaps, Weir was drawn 
on to Professor Peacock as someone who speaks, as someone who he likes to listen to talk, or perhaps also who just was talking about things that he was interested in, right? Not talking about running a bank uh, or other jobs he might have had, you know, like he wish he could have been an English professor or talking about running the store or being into antiques that we get Professor Peacock, who's interested in uh, going hiking and looking at the, the world around them and telling weird cool things about it you know saying like hey like this cave here the human stuff in this cave is probably older than the pyramids right and like that's a real cool thing to tell a nine-year-old i mean it's a cool thing to tell me right so like that's that's awesome right so we can see i think that like weir perhaps feels a kinship with professor peacock in a way that he does not feel with mcafee or or blaine but i do also perhaps think that he and olivia have just a lot more in common at least in terms of their interests and, and also maybe just intellect in general. One thing I think that Professor Peacock brings out of Olivia is like a really dark kind of antagonism. <laughs> there are all these jokes about murder. There's a joke about like the dog funeral, like they're going to kill each other. But then Weir thinks, you know, he'd kill the dog for the fun of a funeral. So he's like when the older Weir is reflecting back on this, he thinks his eight year old self was kind of bored by all of this. But you're right to point out that there's a, a kind of cognitive dissonance here, because if we're the young Weir was so bored by this, why would he remember so much about it? And why would so much of it then connect to the Boy Scout knife and the axe, which are really important things on Weir's mind now, kind of in the present narrative moment? Uh, it's really fascinating to me. And I think that I hadn't really drawn out that conflict uh, before you you ta were talking about this, that, you know, Weir pretends to be really bored and disinterested, but this stuff must have been awesome. And, you know, Professor Peacock's carrying around arrowheads in his pockets and talking about how you can make weapons from these rocks, which are already in Weir's mind, these Templars, like these knights protecting something holy. Uh, it's really, really fascinating. The relationship that Peacock has not only with Weir in Weir's mind as he's looking back, but also with Olivia. I mean, what do you make of this really dark antagonism between Professor Peacock and Olivia? Right. I mean, number one, sexual tension. Right. And and maybe maybe that's just because we've all been trained by Hollywood to to read <laughs> to read this kind of antagonism as sexual tension in a, a sort of will they won't they bantery way. But that is very much what it felt like to me and, and felt like that was being narrated by a nine year old, a second grader who doesn't get that who doesn't is it can't possibly right see these conversations see these jokes uh on the on that level along those lines i did also wonder if maybe they just both like mystery novels i mean agatha christie's got three novels out at the point that this story's taking place she's a huge seller <laughs> they're talking about other books while they're hiking so like i don't know you know this is like a new genre murder mystery is like pretty new it's pretty hot at this time so you know maybe maybe that's part of it yeah that could be i mean one thing we have to make explicit before we get to the fate here is that Professor Peacock found uh, some like old bones by digging around in the dirt. He finds an old giant sloth, a megafauna. And so like th his relationship to the earth is something uh, that we see in this text that we just haven't brought up yet. Right. And that's going to be, you know, a you know, big part of the fairy tale before we get to the fairy tale, or, or I guess even just before we move on to the next suitor, I have a, a real question for you, Brandon, about sort of the backstory that we don't get here, which is a question of 
how did Olivia and Professor Peacock actually meet? Uh, McAfee and Stuart Blaine both live in Cashinsville. And so like, you know, that makes sense. Like we don't really have to do a whole lot of work to imagine how uh, uh, Olivia might meet the person who manages and owns the, you know, sole department store in town, for example, right? Like we can just fill in the blanks there without a whole lot of work. But Professor Peacock works at the university that is uh, dozens of miles away. He has to get here by train. So how is it that they actually met, do you think? Well, trains go two ways as far as I as far as I know. And I wonder if Olivia, who we know is ordering science magazines through the library and is really interested in, I don't know, at least China, like she must read a lot. She must have these kind of really broad interests, or at least that's pretty clear to me. My, my suspicion is she went to a talk at the university. Uh, she took a train and went to a talk and met Professor Peacock. Either he was giving the talk or he was in attendance and they hit it off. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I was thinking was happening. I just don't think that it's, you know, that Professor Peacock came to Cashinsville for some reason. Like, I don't know. Maybe he needed to get something at McAfee's department store. And I don't know. I mean, you could you could you could adapt it that way. in This TV show that we've been pitching and, and are going to continue to pitch on this episode as well. But no, I think she went to the the university. She went to the college for for, for you know, a lecture, maybe to use the library, something like that. And yeah, this is how this has happened. And thinking a little bit more about Professor Peacock, who certainly of all the three suitors is the person that, well, frankly, I like the most and also uh, the person that I can relate to the most in the sense that I've spent a lot of my life on university campuses uh, doing academic things that I wonder, you know, thinking about what it is to be a professor here in, you know, I don't know, circa 1920, circa 1925. I wonder what he's even really looking for, uh, given that we think, you know, that this is kind of, there's a meet cute that happens at the university in some way that is professor Peacock actually a suitor? Like, is he looking for a wife at this point or is he actually maybe just bored in this college town and Olivia is pretty exciting and Cashinsville is a bigger town than the college town is. And Hey, all the bars are closed because it's prohibition. So yeah, I guess I just wondered even how seriously he's looking for a wife, which is not something that we question about McAfee and Stuart Blaine. That's a great question. I mean, what you've described is, I think, the the kind of novel that Wolf would never write, which is the <laughs> Midwestern professor who's having affairs and all that sort of stuff. I mean, we can imagine the, the uh, trajectory of that relationship. But yeah, Olivia's probably uh, at least an intellectual match for Professor Peacock. She's interested in the stuff he's interested in. She can keep up with him. And all of those things probably really appeal to him. So yeah, I mean, why not uh, take the train once in a while and hang out with a really great woman from the next town over because she's not a student and she's not one of his peers at the university and she'd probably be a good match for him if he's thinking about kind of the function of marriage, the social utility of marriage and why he should get married if he's a bachelor in his late 20s or early 30s. Um, yeah, he might be thinking I should get married and Olivia's pretty great. So I don't know how seriously he's thinking about marriage, but he's certainly thinking about maybe he's a little more egalitarian also in terms of relationships and things like that, uh, that he's not expecting a lot out of her, but he wants a companion. And so I think that's really what it comes down to is more than either of these other suitors, 
Professor Peacock is looking for a companion, not a wife. Right. One thing that uh, I left out when I was even thinking about, you know, the, the characteristics of Olivia that we're presented with and thinking about why she's even back in Cashinsville at all. I kind of left out a step there, which is just to ask why she's not already married. And, and yeah, right. We're told repeatedly that that's the expectation that someone, uh, you know, a woman in Cashinsville in the 1920s would have actually already been married at the age that she is, even though like that, I think probably strikes most of us as as pretty young in her sort of early to mid to mid 20s but in fact a lot of american women of her station at this point would have gotten married to someone that they met while in college and olivia did not do that but i think the same is actually true of professor peacock who probably would not have gotten married to someone while he was an undergrad but would have most people who are professors who, you know, in their late 20s, perhaps at this point, maybe early 30s, though, I expect more like late 20s. Uh, at this point in the sort of American social history is someone who uh, would have been likely to have married someone that he met while he was doing his PhD, wherever that was, though I'm going to go out and just guess that that was an Ivy League institution on the East Coast. Uh, could be University of Chicago, right? But some elite private school uh, to the east of Kansas for sure. But he didn't do that. And and Olivia didn't do that either. So here we are with two really lively, really intellectually engaged people who both have uh, bucked the social expectations for marriage that other people had for people of their of their station. And so now they're, you know, palling around together here in like, you know, Western Kansas or something like that. And now I'm actually just veering into pitching like, you know, occult detective team up. <laughs> <Sorry here. laughs> I have I have in the back of in the back burner of my mind, a cursed object story that is these exact two characters. So we'll see if that ever sees the light of day. It certainly hasn't gotten uh, any ink on paper yet. But uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, let's move on to the second suitor here. That's James McAfee. Uh, I will probably alternate saying McAfee and McAfee just because of the way uh, my mind is disorganized today, but uh, it's the same person. So he's the department store owner. He's stocky and bald. So he's basically you or me, Glenn, minus the (laughs) successful businessman angle. Uh, But the primary excursion that McAfee and Olivia Weir go on has to do with the affair of the Chinese egg. So we'll talk about that in a moment. But they also go to the bandstand in the park and see a Civil War monument. And what I see McAfee then bringing out of Olivia is both her ability to run a small business, like he invests in her small business, uh, essentially, but also this kind of deeply... scheming nature that has to do with the fair of the Chinese egg and absolutely nothing to do with going to see the band in the park. So Glenn, what are the sorts of things that McAfee's presence in the narrative brings out of young Weir, uh, but also Olivia, if you have thoughts about that? Yeah. You know, I think if we're looking for adjectives to describe uh, personality traits of these suitors, and, and maybe in particular, the sort of, I don't know, cognitive abilities of these different suitors, that Professor Peacock is intellectual. And McAfee is, I think, crafty. Uh, he kind of strikes me as, as actually a bit of an Odysseus character, even if he looks more like us than like an actual <laughs> Greek, <laughs> Greek hero. But he clearly is is a very intelligent person who is in fact interested in in things but that he seems to get 
a lot of uh, satisfaction out of being crafty, out of being clever, out of uh, accomplishing things rather than out of like discovery, which is what we clearly see with uh, with Professor Peacock. And so we see the way that Weir, young Weir, responds to those things differently as well, right? I think he had a really great time out with Peacock on this adventure with the cave and so on. Whereas with McAfee, what he talks about is how much he loved when James McAfee would come over because he would give him like actual stuff. Whereas, you know, Professor Peacock and Stuart Blaine would bring flowers and chocolate. It's not clear, right? If like, you know, one of them always brought flowers and one of them always brought chocolate or if they, you know, mixed in and matched there. But McAfee brings stuff that, well, I mean, frankly, it's stuff that he has because he owns the department store in town. It's not like he's, you know, went specially out of his way to get it, though I do believe he gave thought about what he was going to bring for Weir. But he gets useful stuff. And that's really Weir's relationship with McAfee is on this material level, seeing him as a way that he can get things. And this is a pretty big deal when you're nine years old, when you have no agency uh, in the world, in the material world in particular, that if there are things that you want and, you know, like, look, kids want stuff, <laughs> you know, there are things kids want, <laughs> toys and, and books and so on, that if he wants that stuff, he has to do something to get some money in order to get that on his own. And I'm sure he has some kind of allowance that allows for that, or he has to get stuff through gifts. And and actually every object that we know matters to him is something that he received as a gift. Uh, the, the, the green fairy book, right? The, the boy scout knife for, you know, are the, are the two big examples here, but so getting people to give you stuff is a real big deal. So you can see where nine-year-old Weir would absolutely think that James McAfee was like the best of these suitors because, well, he's the best suitor for his own, you know, like self-interest. Yeah. I mean, when your uncle, if you want to call this like this type of relationship like that, kind of like the avuncular, at least person in your life, they're like, hey, I want to hang out with your aunt. And uh, you know what you need? You need some baseball gear so you can play with friends outside <laughs> while I'm inside with your aunt alone. Uh, it's that sort of thing. I mean, one thing that we should really just focus on for a second in, in this section with regards to McAfee's department store is, you know, the tin soldiers that uh, Weir is like super into collecting these army men. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. The materiality and the material culture is something that the older Weir is reflecting on as he's thinking about McAfee and his relationship to McAfee. Uh, and also this, this kind of civil war monument and going to the park and the people and the instruments, like everything he sees in this park moment in particular is, you know, where people are sitting on the stands. He's not thinking about the sound of music that's coming from the band. He's not thinking about the instruments. He's really thinking about the monument that he sees. And then he's thinking about soldiers. And so what McAfee kind of brings out in terms of the reflections in the text are, are about the objects in the world that are also about, you know, violence and warfare and mem memorialization on some level. Well, we do get a lot of materiality with Professor Peacock as well, right? But it's all about old stuff. And it's all about envisioning the ways that people of the prehistoric past, uh, how they lived, whereas the materiality that we get with Mc McAfee or McAfee, I know I'm doing it. I don't know. I don't know how I want to <laughs> but uh, what he's doing here is commenting on his contemporary world, right? What's the stuff that he can get now? How is it made? 
did the chemistry set actually kill him and he's you know just a ghost who never actually lived this life that he remembers living uh, or at least you know after this point and so on right that it's about the contemporary world and that's a real interesting contrast i think as well yeah and i think we're going to touch on this a little bit more in our next episode when we look at history and historiography in relation to these suitors but there's one you know one more material object here that is tied to McAfee and that's the Chinese egg so let's just take a moment here to address the affair of the Chinese egg the the affair is a, a a through line of the chapter and it reveals to me a lot about hospitality culture as we talked about in our recap episode it also reveals to us that Olivia is not super interested into being tricked into a marriage. And she's also a bit of a schemer herself, as I as I said. And it shows us her interactions with other women. And that's really fascinating to me. These women who she is primarily helpful with, as in, you know, she teaches them to paint Chinese stuff on pottery and she hires them, but also really socially. It shows us her interactions with her peers or people she treats as peers like Eleanor Bold and, and Mrs. Lorne. The affair of the Chinese egg also serves as a backbone of the chapter as well. And and another thing that it also does for me is connect some of the bird imagery we see throughout this chapter with Olivia. An egg ultimately produces a, a bird or I guess we eat it. I mean, we also eat <laughs> eggs that don't become birds. And, you know, in Weir's Dream, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, which is an interlude in this chapter, we see a dead bird turning into a broken paper lantern. And these symbols shift and kind of coalesce into one another. So Olivia is symbolically and also textually and literally linked to birds and eggs and so on. And also dragons, which I guess also <laughs> maybe hatch. But, you know, we're going to talk more about the dream in relation to the fairy tale and, and probably our ne next episode. But what I'd like from you, Glenn, is to get a sense of how you feel about what this affair of the Chinese egg story is for and why you think it really makes up the backbone of chapter two. How do you really see it functioning in the text so far. The most obvious thing here, right, is simply that it's it's something that gives parody to the interactions that he has with the other two suitors, with Professor Peacock and with, with Stuart Blaine, in that each of these is about an excursion or, you know, some kind of uh, event or adventure experience, maybe that's the word I'm looking for, that he has uh, outside of his home. Uh, on a date, essentially, with uh, Olivia and uh, each of these men. And also that each of these experiences involves a vehicle, right? How did we get where we were going? Uh, taking the, the trolley out to, you know, the end of the line, and then they walk all the way up to Eagle Rock and the cave at that point, right? So there's the trolley there with Professor Peacock. We get the roadster here with McAfee. And then with Stuart Blaine, we're going to get his expensive British uh, sports car. And so just in that way, I think the affair of the Chinese egg is important for giving us the, the vehicle, right? Wolf likes to use vehicles as sort of character building, like not just here in peace, but this is something that we have seen in other stories, other novels, and, and something that continues as a through line uh, through Wolf's career, using that to, to show us things about, uh, about these characters. But also, I have a suspicion that Margaret Lorne, right, who's the, the kid here in this story, the Lorne kid in this story, a few years older than him, you know, it's just uh, not the first appearance she's made in this story. And I just have a feeling that she's more important than she seems right now. And that it's possible that the affair of the Chinese egg is really a story about Margaret Lorne. 
That's exactly how I feel as well. This, the, the affair of the Chinese egg was a big deal this summer. I mean, we saw that the whole town got involved and, you know, everybody's factions sort of came out and, and allegiances and everybody was playing these games with one another. And it was kind of probably a great, fun event for all of the kind of elite people in this town, at least. But what really matters to Weir is how this opened up the world of Cashinsville to him in some way, especially as it introduced him to Margaret Lorne, who we also saw is similar to Aunt Olivia. And I don't think Aunt Olivia is going to be this Oedipal character for Weir, though I could be wrong about that. But certainly Weir's not shy about talking about uh, how beautiful he thinks his aunt is. And kind of, we saw in chapter one, ascribing these, as I recall, like Elizabeth Taylor-like qualities to her. Um, And how Margaret Lorne also has dark hair, also plays music. And so some of these symbols that are about Aunt Olivia might also pertain to Margaret Lorne in a different way. And so that's something we're really going to have to key in on as we continue to read the novel. All right. Well, our last suitor is Stuart Blaine. And of the three suitors, he's really the one we see the least of. He's introduced first to us in the text in Olivia's conversation with Professor Peacock when they're talking about George Sand and and Lou Wallace. We talked a lot about those folks in our recap episode that covered this section. Blaine is a Lou Wallace man. And that is to say that he's rather conservative. Uh, and maybe he's also willing to take the heat after the fallout of the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, that, that actually might be too specific of a comparison, but really he's super into traditional values and he's staunchly conservative. Though he tries to play the liberal card and not like liberal politics, but like liberalism or I don't know, maybe even a little libertine sprinkle in there as well during Olivia and Weir's excursion to his home for dinner. You know, he drank in college, he says, but not really. He's really more into Emerson than his work, uh, but not really. And he's really like George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. He's a man with dreams who's bowled over by his responsibilities and so forth. And he wishes his life could be different, but not really. And I actually honestly suspect that his first name, Stewart here, was inspired by Jimmy Stewart as George (laughs) Bailey uh, from from It's a Wonderful Life. You know, if I'm being honest here. Uh, So I guess with with regards to Stuart Blaine here, we'll just follow the same pattern that we've been following with the questions about the other suitors in the text. So I'll just start here. My sense is that Blaine really elicits literally nothing in Olivia. (laughs) Like he's just (laughs) there so we can get a strange type of theodicy fable from Doherty at some point. Olivia doesn't have much to say or to do with him. And it's not clear to me either what he brings out of Weir. Though, of course, we do get this odd aside about the Persian room and how Weir might also be a really bad boss and a bad person like Blaine is in the text. So, Glenn, what is your sense of Blaine and Olivia, like what they bring out of one another and then also what Blaine and Weir bring out of one another? Yeah, Blaine is boring and and in, in, in like the worst possible ways because sort of it's not even just that he's uninteresting he actually prevents other people around him I think from being interesting and this whole business with Lou Wallace and you know really enjoying Ben Hur which is something that we don't learn 
in this scene, in the scene that we get with Blaine. We, we learned this from Professor Peacock. And I think the subtext of that conversation was Professor Peacock, who is a professor and is like the intellectual person that Olivia is is dating, is saying, you know, this other guy you're dating who says that he really wished he could have gone on to be an English professor, has pretty terrible taste in literature and is essentially reading, you know, like airport books and loving them. And uh, yeah, you should definitely keep dating me and stop dating him. I think red right, is the subtext <laughs> of that. And, and, you know, if I'm going back to something I did with McAfee and which is to say like, let's come up with a sort of like one adjective to use to describe the kind of cognitive uh, landscape of the, the, this suitor where I said intellectual for professor Peacock and crafty for James McAfee. I think for Stuart Blaine, we, this is where we actually, I think really ought to use the word scheming here, right? That this dude is a Slytherin and loves being a Slytherin. Like that's <laughs> the real joy that he gets out of life is scheming and manipulating. I don't know that he wants to marry Olivia. I think he wants to convince Olivia to marry him because, you know, that will be fun for him to manipulate someone into that. And he's a total chameleon here while he's doing it, right? That he's pretending to be something that she might like and is not actually offering up his true self at all. He's clearly putting on a show for Olivia, putting on a slight variation of that show for Weir, I think, right? So he's just a gross person, I think, generally speaking. But I also just cannot imagine what it is that uh, Blaine and Olivia actually do together on other dates, right? Like we know this whole dinner at the house thing's only possible because Weir is there, but that they've been dating for a while before this point, and I just cannot think of what they would go do together. Yeah, I mean, Weir describes Blaine's personality as, quote, like, being wealthy, <laughs> which is not a personality type at all. And yet, uh, Weir has put a foyer in his house that is modeled off of his memory of Blaine's foyer. And so uh, we'll see when we get into this fairy tale, kind of the symbolic correlations between some of these characters. And I think we'll also see when we do that, that Blaine captured Weir's imagination in a maybe a very unhealthy way. But that's not evident in the text as it's given to us. It's only given to us in kind of the symbolic variation of this story of the three suitors. Right. If we're looking at these three men as, as potential models for we're like models of what it is to be an adult in the, the world and in particular to be an adult man in, in the world, adult we seems most like Blaine. Right. He, he seems to have oriented himself around greed, even though he's had other interests in his life. In fact, there's a lot about adult Weir that seems to approach thinking about the world in, in s ways that he saw modeled by Professor Peacock. But the, the choices that he's made seem based around greed. They seem most like Blaine. And it's, yeah, it's Blaine's house that he sort of brings into his own home and then, you know, makes a point of telling, you know, us, the audience, that uh, his house is even bigger than than Blaine's, right? And that's something that he's pretty clearly proud of. And and so, I don't know, is adult Weir's personality trait simply that he's rich also? Is it kind of seems like it? Yeah. I mean, that's my question as well of this text at this point is, adult Weir's personality that he's wealthy. Well, while we keep that in mind, we can shift into the symbolic coverage of this chapter that we get uh, from Wolf the writer and Weir the, I don't know, 
narrator, I suppose. <laughs> so let's really look at the fairy tale. And, you know, I don't think we need to make a really explicit argument here uh, in terms of premises and conclusions to just say that this fairy tale is about Olivia and her suitors. You know, there's also maybe symbolism in Weird's dream later on that that connects to the suitors as well. We get the fairy tale in the text just after the affair with the Chinese egg is teased for the first time. And and I'm just going to give a quick gist of the fairy tale. It's this. A king has a daughter, a princess, and then an old wizard dressed in wolf skins. And I think what I consider to be Gene Wolfe's cameo in this novel <laughs> uh, as, as the kind of author here offers the king uh, a prophecy. And the prophecy is this. The little maiden you toast here shall live alone full many a year, and many a white shall seek her hand, though she not own a foot of land. Earth, sea, and air will woo the fair, but fire will win her. And though her sire be a king by birth, greater the groom will gin gold from the earth. The princess's name is Alaya, which is Greek for olive. So yeah, that's all the argument we need to make this about <laughs> Olivia. And let's just pause here and assess what this prophecy reveals to us. Uh, for instance, it suggests to me that Weir's grandfather, who was dead, is some kind of king, or at least is thought of in that way. But there are other kings too we see in this text. Uh, and we know that Olivia is not going to marry another king, but someone who gets their wealth maybe through some kind of a labor. What else, if anything, do you think this prophecy suggests to us about the real world? Yeah, this is a great question. And this may actually do something to answer the question that I had about why Olivia came back to Cashinsville to begin with, right? Because the setup here is that dad imprisons his daughter, right? That, that Olivia's been imprisoned by her father. And so even though I, I'm, I'm confident in my assessment that he's been dead for quite a while. It's totally possible that she still has some constraints on her life because of things that her father has done, you know, legally, perhaps about her inheriting some money it may just be that it's about the financial dependence on her older brother. Right. But that it does present Cashinsville, I think, as a kind of prison for Olivia, which is really is the sense that I have of her. Uh, it then also, of course, represents her father as a king. I think it's fair to say that definitely the Weir family is among the elite, the the wealthy elite of the Cashinsville area. Uh, the Blaines obviously are too. Uh, and in fact, they might actually be sort of, you know, a rung up on the ladder. Uh, hard, hard to say how many families we're even talking about, you know, like in this in circle. I mean, we know the Blacks are in this circle and, and maybe a few others, uh, the Bolds perhaps, right? The Judge and, and so on. But, you know, it's not going to be a whole lot of, of people. And so, yeah, they're near the top. They have this inherited wealth. They, they own a lot of land that they then rent out to tenants for sure, which is like literally what a medieval king does is like they own the country as like property, right? That's what it meant to be the king of France was that you owned France as your private property and rented it out to other people. So, you know, that reinforces, I think, some uh, assertions that we'd already made or some some assumptions that we'd already made there. So, yeah, those those for me are the are the big things. Yeah, th those were the big things that jumped out to me as well. I mean, I'll just say also, since we just got finished talking about Blaine, that, and you just talked about how kind of grimy a, a schemer he is, that it seems to me that one reason he wants to marry 
Olivia is to get his hands on the Weir family wealth. And and so that, at least to me, is, is a part of what uh, Blaine's interest in Olivia is. But let's continue with this fairy tale. What is suggested in this prophecy is what plays out in the fairy tale, because otherwise it wouldn't be a fairy tale. So right. <laughs> three suitors come after Elia, you know, who has been stranded on some sort of tower fortress on a rock in the ocean. The first suitor, we're told, is the youngest son of the king of the gnomes, so a prince. He likes to dig around in the dirt and is ultimately rejected by Elia because his kisses tasted like dirt. He was given these difficult tasks by the princess, but in Weir's opinion, in reading this story, they were accomplished too easily. So, Glenn, who is suitor number one here, <laughs> the son of the king of the gnomes, in, in your opinion? Right. We're going to have, you know, uncharacteristically, zero disagreement on this. The, the, the answers here are so <laughs> obvious, but we'll make sure we point them out because we explicitly did not do this in the recap, even though, right, it's totally obvious. Yeah. So the, the, the gnome prince, the prince of the gnomes here is Professor Peacock. Yeah, there's just no question about that. Not only is he the first suitor who shows up in the text, he's the first suitor in the fairy tale. I mean, Wolf is playing a, a bit of a structural game here. What does the symbolic relationship that's given in the text between Elia and the son of the, the youngest son of the king of the gnomes suggest to us about Olivia's relationship with Professor Peacock. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff here that we can, in, you know, infer about Peacock if we're, we're, you know, taking the gnome prince as being really a stand-in for him. <laughs> One thing that jumped out to me on, on really probably only like, you know, reading number six here for doing the podcast is that uh, the prince of the gnomes is super hot. Uh, the specific line is so handsome that he deserved a picture of his own. And I didn't get that sense in the depiction of Professor Peacock, but it's a real interesting detail, right? Especially since we are explicitly told that James McAfee is, uh, well, more like us than, 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 the prince of the, than the Prince of the Gnomes, right? And uh, that, to me, also then is something that strikes me uh, about both Olivia and Professor Peacock and that they are both extremely attractive people who lived in, you know, fancy, exciting places on the East Coast at like date young dating ages, marriageable ages, and both chose, I think, not to marry someone that they knew in that world and does, I think, create a real interesting dynamic for them here as perhaps not only just being the only people in like a hundred square miles who have, you know, real intellectual interests, but they're also the two hottest people, <laughs> you know, in this area also. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you say he get, he gets a picture of his own, I mean, that's right from the text. And, and what it means is that uh, the illustrator of this green book of fairy tales uh, has decided to give this suitor his own picture in the book. We should also say that this is not a uh, this is not a real story in in the book of fairy tales that uh, that we are got. He's he's making this up, or Wolf is making this up. We should say. Right, though, we have questions about that, that we are going to kick until uh, the next episode. And uh, another thing that jumped out to me here, too, in the description of the Prince of the Gnomes is that, you know, he's extremely well born, but he's the youngest son, which, you know, I think, you know, if we're going to take that as a one for one with Professor Peacock, then it suggests as well that 
Peacock is the youngest son of some kind of like wealthy farming family, maybe wealthy industrial family. In fact, maybe more likely industrial family. And so he's not going to inherit the business, but he did have the financial means and therefore also like the freedom to get into a prestigious career, right? To go get himself a fancy PhD from an Ivy League university or some other, you know, prestigious private university in America and get a professorship at a university living a pretty, you know, sort of fast paced life where he's doing like exciting research and engaged in, especially if we're thinking as an anthropologist, engaged in activities that are really reshaping the whole cosmology of of the world. In a sense, then, Professor Peacock is exactly the person who Blaine says that he wishes that he was. And that's real interesting. That's a really interesting point. I mean, not, not only, as we've pointed out many times before, does this indicate that the suitors all knew about each other, but the way the suitors interact with Olivia is to try to elicit in her what they think she likes about the other suitors. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's just a weird kind of, it's a weird way to think about how to interact with another person. And I think Blaine is the one who does this the most in terms of trying, you, you called him a chameleon. And I think that's right. So I think it will be important, actually, like given that we know that Olivia is ultimately going to reject each of these suitors, even though we don't see any of that happen, at least not in this chapter, I think it will be interesting to look at the reasons for that rejection that are given here in the fairy tale. And in this case, it's because Professor Peacock's kisses tasted too strongly of uh, fresh turned earth. That's that's the, the specific phrase that's used here. I'm not sure what that means. What do you think that means, Brandon? This is a real fairy tale sort of logic that Weir has put in here. Maybe he's a bad kisser or something like that, you know, or or he tries to get too fresh with Olivia too often and she doesn't like it. One thing I do want to point out here in, in which the fairy tale must explicitly diverge from the reality of the world that Weir is writing about or we've got some of our assumptions wrong, is that Olivia confides the reason for each of these rejections to the king who comes out to visit her. And so maybe we need to also think about that the king is not her father, but some other confidant in her life, though that makes everything very difficult and overly complicated. But it's something to keep an eye on as well. Well, I'm interested that you gravitated towards the kisses here because I was just overlooking that entirely and was I was really wondering what fresh turned earth meant, which we will return to. But yeah, this is the only one of the rejections that actually has to do with any kind of like you know, physical connection. Uh, there's nothing sexy about the reje other rejections. This is the only one. So yeah, I mean, I had not thought about that at all, but it might be that Professor Peacock is yeah, a bad kisser or too fresh uh, or both perhaps, right? That might actually be the most damning of them is to be to be both. But <laughs> but I do, I think my my gut still is that it's really on the fresh turned earth. That, like that's the, the problem. And I, I guess that's really what I was wondering what that meant. Is it about, because I guess I initially had read that actually Actually, uh, as being about class, and that's why I made a point of of emphasizing the lines that we get here that really tell us about his social class, which is to say that he is of the same type of class, as far as I can tell, as. Olivia, in that he is someone who comes from a, a, a moneyed family, a wealthy family, and is the you know the younger child there, and has gone on to to do different things. But I wonder if there is actually something to the fact, you know, if we think that maybe it's not a farming 
family that he's from, but an industrial family. Like there's something unseemly about that for her. But I also wondered, you know, this is the dude who takes them out for a date on, you know, like basically a kind of small, you know, like archaeological or or paleontological (laughs) excavation. And uh, maybe she's actually less into that than I thought she was. Yeah, she might like it more from magazines than from, you know, a real adventure, you know, kind of the way she thinks and talks about China as well, where she and Professor Peacock is the one who calls her out on this. He's like, hey, you make up most of these Chinese (laughs) names that you come up with. And your whole fixation with this is not rooted in reality. It's uh, it's rooted in your in your love of your imagination about China. And so she might have this kind of personality where her aspirations are all in the right place just until the rubber hits the road. Like she's never going to leave Cashinsville, right? Because the way she expresses her love of China and talks about it is to collect material artifacts. And then she does this, you know, Nanking nook thing in the department store. Like she's doing more to tie herself to the people and place of Cashinsville than she is to trying to extricate herself from it. Um, another sense of this fresh turned dirt, as you pointed out, was like the dates are really bad or like Professor Peacock's a bad lover is just that he he's literally kissing dirt like he's married in some sense to his work and that that is going to interfere with his relationship with Olivia. And so it says perhaps that Olivia is looking for someone who's more devoted to her in some sense than they are to their own pursuits, though that that might not play out as we continue in the novel. Well, I, I that's interesting because I think that is my reading of the, the next uh, person we're going to meet in the fairy tale. So let's move there. Yeah. So the second suitor is a merchant. He is shrewd and Cunning, like he's so cunning that he's able to take the ox from the fox, the (laughs) classical representation of the cunning animal. And then he leaves the fox with the F and trades the ox for a giant's shadow. Yeah, I don't know what this means either, Uh, but he exchanges the shadow for a magical bird of Rumi and amethyst. So, you know, like a a magic bird from a magic egg, perhaps. Uh, And then Olivia gets the bird to sing. And she sets it free in order to hear its best song. But then, and I said Olivia there, I should say Elia, they're interchangeable. But (laughs) then uh, she lures this bird back into its cage by singing to the bird herself. So the bird has to be set free in order to sing this beautiful song, its best song. But Olivia or Elia's song is so beautiful that the bird actually wants to come and listen to Elia sing. And then she dumps the merchant because when they embrace, the money bag on his belt hurts her. So who does this suitor represent? And what does this tell us about Olivia's relationship with him in the real world? Right. This is James McAfee. Right? Don't expect any argument from you, but I'll give you space for it. No space here. That's right. It's James McAfee. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on here with with their relationship, right? I mean, yeah, the the line exactly is the heavy purse hanging from his belt bruised her each time they embraced. So I guess I totally misspoke when I said the the one with the the prince of the gnomes was the only one that had any kind of touching. This has touching too, <laughs> but yeah, here it's not the embrace itself. It's it's the the bruising that she gets from the heavy purse. What's interesting though, and you know, we're going to stand by our reading. This is James McAfee. There is no doubt about that. But this attribute here for 
McAfee in the fairy tale is actually the attribute that's given to Blaine in the text, right? That this is the attribute for McAfee, even though Blaine is wealthier or at least more ostentatious with his wealth, right? And of course, Blaine is the one who is described by Weir, you know, in terms of being wealthy as as that being his only personality trait. So yeah, this kind of, in some ways, maybe blurs the lines between McAfee and, and, and Blaine. And I wonder, you know, what do we think, what do we see as the differences between the two of them, even though, right, they're both wealthy. They both also own an important institution in the town. So like, yeah, what are the differences between them? Well, I think the the key word here to hone in on is, is merchant. They're both wealthy, but um, merchants trade goods and Blaine trades money, basically, which is not a good. And we'll look at him in a moment and what his, you know, kingdom is, so to speak. But to me, that's the core difference is that McAfee is a merchant and there's no way around that. And what gets between them, like literally this gets between them and hurts Olivia, like Aliyah, I should say, is hurt by this, is some sort of representation of money that has gotten through trade. And all of this is connected to the egg in some sense. And so maybe, Glenn, I should just throw a question back at you here. Do you think this story gives us any resolution about the the affair of the Chinese egg that we don't get by the end of this chapter? It does seem to suggest that McAfee executes his plan to to buy the egg himself and and actually give it to Olivia, which she was skeptical that he was really going to, right? Like she has this fear that he's going to buy it and then say, well, if you want to have this egg, you need to marry me and then you can move in to my house with me and then it will be yours too, right? Because anything that's mine is also my wife's. This seems to suggest though that he gives it to her and maybe even as a kind of like token for an engagement, like part of a proposal, the way that, you know, typically we have diamond rings that, that, that serve that purpose and that she rejects it, right. That she, in the, the, get the, the sort of the metaphor of the, like setting it free here though, you know, I don't know that might be pushing the metaphor too far. Uh, I mean, one thing I want to point out in relation to this as well is that McAfee just generally values Olivia for her musicality. And the way that plays in with this bit about the bird, you know, what McAfee went through to get this bird for Aliyah, what this merchant, I should say, I'm mixing up the symbols (laughs) and the people here a lot. Um, What is going on here is that Aliyah does eventually get this bird, but she does it by using her gifts that are valued by at least McAfee in the text to bring it to herself. And so I wonder if she does something as well that goes behind McAfee's back that gets the egg to her directly from the Lorns that has something to do with using her gifts to get the egg instead of McAfee buying it. And so McAfee's money kind of gets between them in some way in this sense. But it's it's very hard to to tell just quite what's going on as this bit of text relates to the affair of the Chinese egg. Um, and, and, you know, since we're not finished the book, this will be something that we'll do in our final wrap up episodes is to see how this whole thing plays out. Right. I think what is most important, you know, here is what it tells us about sort of why their relationship doesn't work out. You know, and something you're pointing out is that although 
McAfee is wealthy, you know, at least on par with, I think, the Weir family and maybe possibly even Blaine himself, is that he still has to work for a living in ways that is not true of uh, Weir's father, Olivia's brother, or really maybe in some ways Olivia herself, and certainly is not true of Blaine, that McAfee, although wealthy, he's of a different class than these other two suitors. And, you know, this, I don't know, this kind of some like great Gatsby stuff going on here, right? About old money versus new <laughs> money. I think very much here. There's no green light symbol here. That might've been too on the nose for, for Wolf <laughs> to do that, right? But I think that's something that's definitely at play here. There's some class issues there perhaps, but also McAfee has a job that he works a lot. He is actually quite busy. You were speculating about this with Professor Peacock as well, that he's got something that matters to him that he has to focus on or wants to focus on. McAfee actively manages the store. Blaine does not actively manage the bank. He raises horses and dogs and, you know, wishes he was an English professor, though he obviously could be and, you know, chooses not to be. He could still own the bank and be an English professor, I'm sure. But McAfee, we know, works long hours. Uh, Weir tells us that he would come over earlier and also leave earlier for their dates and also less frequently. That, in fact, of the three of them, she went on the fewest amount of dates. She, being Olivia here, went on the fewest amount of dates with McAfee because he's busy. And so, yeah, his job is perhaps in the way of their relationship in this very real sense of he just has less time for her. And that's unattractive. And it mirrors what we already saw about Professor Peacock as well. Well, there is one more suitor to go in this fairy tale, and that uh, is the suitor from the Kingdom of Air, who in Weir's reading of this fairy tale, he says, was the most impressive to him. So anyway, the suitor from the Kingdom of Air, uh, Eliah makes him do like normal housework. (laughs) But he also doesn't make the cut. You know, his task is to do things like wash the dishes. And so Eliah confides in the king that this third suitor's kingdom was too insubstantial for her. It was, quote, all emptiness and moaning wind. So, Glenn, who does this guy represent? And what does this tell us about (laughs) Olivia's relationship with him? (laughs) Right. Just by process of elimination, we have gotten to blame, but we did not need that process to to get here, right? He he is insubstantial and he is empty uh, and and moaning wind right he's all emptiness and moaning wind there's just nothing to him that's that's what we're we're told that's what we see it's really hard to envision for me you know as i said already i couldn't figure out what types of dates they were going on but i also just can't even envision what olivia's life married to stuart blaine would be they would just live in this mansion outside of town raising horses and and dogs and we know look olivia likes to raise dogs so that would be like you know perhaps a big selling point for her something that she would be interested in but i just imagine that she would be bored real quick and that i don't know maybe four years from their wedding she would have to throw some really elaborate like cocktail party like dinner party you know like at their house and then arrange for someone to be murdered uh, in mysterious circumstances, <laughs> just so she could go through a locked door mystery story to get some kind of excitement in this life. I just can't see her doing this. Yes, to kill someone 
for the fun of a funeral. <laughs> We've seen that come up already in this story. <laughs> well, that yeah, that's pretty much the three suitors. That's the fairy tale. Let's just kind of move briefly into some some miscellaneous thoughts about this, about you know how this fairy tale is a symbolic presentation of Aunt Olivia's relationships with our suitors. And we can just talk about things that really jumped out to us. And I would say that the thing that really jumped out to me that I just didn't pick up on on my first read of this chapter is, as I said, that Weir is most impressed by the third suitor, even though he's clearly the worst. And what's weird about this third suitor story is that there's this angelic and ghostly and numinous imagery associated with this suitor. So like, it's, it's just really strange how these symbols attach themselves to Blaine, like especially the word angel jumps out here, though also ghost. And that Weir is the most impressed by this third suitor who was, you know, as you and I have said, clearly the worst of the three. Well, something else about the the parallels here between Blaine and Weir are, actually shows up in the, the tasks that he's given, right? This whole like doing the dishes business, because Weir in chapter one made a real big deal of the fact that his mansion is, you know, super cool uh, and has a dishwasher and that he has never and no one, in fact, has ever washed a dish in the sink in his mansion. And wow, that's a real parallel to what we get with fairy tale Blaine here. It is really weird, as you point out that comparison in particular, to think about the confusion of imagery and symbolism that is really profuse throughout this chapter. That, you know, the confusion of Margaret Lorne and Aunt Olivia, how they are described in a lot of the same ways. And hey, maybe they both possess the Chinese egg at different times and so are considered to be part of this bird imagery that we see. Margaret Lorne is the one who has this weird idea about the egg hatching, a monstrosity that like lives in the woods and eats people. Uh, and then in the fairy tale, we see this, you know, this egg hatching something really beautiful, a beautiful bird that has a beautiful voice. And that actually might be Margaret Lorne in some weird way. And then also the confusion now of the imagery and symbolism between this third suitor and Weir. It's it's very strange, to say the least. Yeah, there's a, a piano in the parlor where the egg is supposed to be at the Lorne farm. And there's, there's the sense that Margaret is you know, part of why they have the piano. There's this big business about how it's difficult to, to get it tuned. That's actually something that uh, Olivia and M. Lorne uh, bond over is like you know, tuning pianos, right? It's one of, the, one of their things there. So yeah, I think that's a great observation that uh, there is perhaps a lot of Olivia in Margaret Lorne that perhaps we will get you know, in, in, in chapters to come. Yeah. I hope, I hope we'll see that. And then we can just talk about how weird it is and try to figure <laughs> out what to do with it. Well, let's just take some time here as we're, as we're kind of rounding third on this episode to talk about who our favorite suitors are, uh, either in the fairy tale or in real life, or at least Weir's memory of real life. So Glenn, who's your favorite? Well, this is actually kind of hard for me to do, except for the part where, like, I kicked Stuart Blaine off the island, like, before we even met him. Like, I learned everything I needed to know about Stuart Blaine from Professor Peacock. So he's been long gone. But uh, I have a hard time maybe separating myself, actually, from Professor Peacock in the sense that, like, if I were going to pick one of these people to just pal around with, like, if I were stuck in Cashinsville for some reason, yeah, Professor Peacock's the person I'd want to hang out with, I think. But 
I don't know that that necessarily makes him uh, the most suitable partner for Olivia between uh, between him and and McAfee. I, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I'm certainly my favorite person. If I were just like looking for a companion to hang out with, uh, if I were stuck in Cashinsville with just myself and my hobbies and my murderous nephew, <laughs> uh, I, I might want to hang out with Professor Peacock the most. But I might. I might respect McAfee the most for like the opportunities that he's provided me and what he brings out of me really without asking too much in return. Although there's real danger there because first, maybe there's the danger of actually loving them, not falling in love. Like I don't think Olivia could fall in love with Jim McAfee, but I think they could love one another uh, in terms of like mutual respect, striving together through life, you know, like doing what's necessary um, but McAfee really brings out of Olivia. And so if I were Olivia, uh, perhaps he would bring out of me my need to be industrious, to bring my passions into a form that makes me a little extra money, to you know, love things that I'm talented with. You know, if I were a great musician, to really just enjoy my love of performing music, if only for this person. So, you know, if I were in my twenties, um, Professor Peacock is my choice. In my 30s, it's Jimmy McAfee. I think he he brings the best out of Olivia without her really fully realizing it. Even kind of her maybe ability to scheme or whatever. The the whole little hospitality scene with M. Lorne is really wonderful. And they both take each other's cues, uh, Olivia and McAfee. And I think they make a genuinely great team and really push each other to be better, though that need to be in love or to uh, consummate their love is kind of their downfall in some sense as well. Yeah, that's a real interesting observation there as well. I I think that, you know, there's a sense in which Blaine is a real outlier here, not just in in the fact that like, you know, we don't like him, (laughs) but also in the fact that the life Olivia would have with him is very different than the life that I think she would have with Peacock or with McAfee, where I think there are real similarities there. That uh, if she were to become Mrs. Professor Peacock or (laughs) Mrs. Jimmy McAfee, that she herself would become defined by their occupations, their uh, places and stations in the world. That if she marries Professor Peacock, she's going to move, you know, like 60 miles away to this college town and become a, a, a faculty spouse, a faculty wife, where uh, she's going to have space and and time to pursue a lot of her hobbies. She's going to have access to a much better library. So that's awesome. Uh, but a lot of what her expectations as wife are going to be, setting aside any kind of like, you know, maybe becoming a mother, but just what her expectations of being wife in this scenario are going to be, is going to be to throw cool parties for other professors, uh, probably at least once a month. Like that's a, there's a real um, social pressure for that. That's sort of a big part of what life at universities in the 1920s, really uh, the first half of the 20th century is really defined by, by this, right? Faculty wife is a real important social position uh, at the university. And so that's going to become her life. So that's, that's, you know, something that's on the table there for her. And I think she might really enjoy that with Jimmy McAfee, you know, 
she's going to be the wife of uh, someone who lives in the town that she grew up in. That's not going to be true with Professor Peacock. She's going to leave her home if she marries him. Uh, but here with McAfee, she'll stay in Cashinsville and she will be the wife of the person who owns the only department store, someone who is an important member of the community, also, you know, has the the, the wealth. So I don't think that's going to be a real concern with uh, Professor Peacock either. Uh, but someone who, unlike Stuart Blaine, we see actively participating in the community, right? We see him going to concerts and he knows who his customers are, right? Remembers things uh, about them, or at least remembers that he should look up things about them, uh, that he participates in the community of Cashinsville in ways that Stuart Blaine is quite, quite clearly not only a chameleon, but also a leech who lives kind of outside <laughs> of it and also a snake. Like he's all sorts. He's like, he's actually the monster that's going to come out of the, uh, out of the Chinese egg, I think. And, uh, but anyway, yeah. So like really, I know I'm getting long winded here, but that those are kind of sort of the, the two lives that I, I think that Olivia would have be choosing from if she's choosing between these two people. Well, the, the one thing you failed to mention is that culturally speaking, Mrs. Peacock is the one who ends up in, in murder mysteries uh, in parlors. So, Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we've been totally unable to resist, I think, reframing this entire chapter as like every different genre of story imaginable. And we've got, I don't, we've, I've lost count of how many spinoffs we've pitched. But one of the ideas that we've pitched in a recap episode that has really stuck with me is actually adapting this chapter, like taking this chapter, and I think some of the things we know from chapter one as well, and turning it into uh, essentially Gilmore Girls, except in you know <laughs> 1920s Kansas, and we get Cashinsville instead of Stars Hollow. But I think, you know, if we were going to do that, I think you know, Olivia is maybe kind of our protagonist character and that the kind of anchor of the story is her dating life. And this is what allows us to see uh, Cashinsville and sort of other parts of the outline community around her. And so, yeah, I thought it would be fun if we actually thought about like who we might cast in some of these roles. I mean, maybe Olivia and the, the suitors, we can talk about some of the other characters if we want to. And you were the one, Brandon, who, you know, zoomed in on, hey, this is basically the exact plot of Gilmore Girls, right, that I was pitching when I was coming up with this idea. And it's been impossible for me to let go of that and and see Olivia as played by anyone other than Lauren Graham. Oh, that's a great choice. Uh, a similar looking person who to me seems the obvious typecast choice is Zoe Deschanel. Oh, yeah. I think Zoe Deschanel might lean a little too hard on the sort of nerdy, awkward trope that we have, which is actually a trope they do give to Lorelai Gilmore for like the first three episodes of that show and then quickly abandon. Um, <laughs> right. So, yeah, there'd be different directions there. Yeah, maybe uh, Zoe Deschanel would be a better Eleanor Bold or something like that. <laughs> right. Whoever we think should be wearing glasses, I, I guess, and, and tripping <laughs> over things. Right? <laughs> and bangs. I mean, without her bangs, who is she? <laughs> but I mean, Zoe, Zoe, Zoe Deschanel is a singer as well. And so she's been typecast in this role, like in 500 Days of Summer and The New Girl and all that oh, sort of yes, stuff. So right. To me, it feels like she's the she's the natural typecast uh, for, for, for this character. Well, I love that idea. I mean, you're bringing in the music and her, her band, She and Him, is one of my favorite uh, sort of contemporary musical acts. And so, yeah, getting her to do the soundtrack as well. Like, I'm I'm in favor of that for sure. <laughs> well, who, who do you have in mind for Professor Peacock? I, I don't really know. I just have to say I have two, maybe two characters in mind, two people in mind for 
Professor Peacock. Uh, one is just because I feel like I want to see this person uh, in in this story, uh, Tom Hiddleston. But then also, who I really think would be a great um, Professor Peacock if you gave him a wig is uh, an actor, a character actor named Corey Stoll, who played Hemingway in Midnight in Paris. Oh yeah, and uh, it's just a it's just a great charismatic sort of screen presence, and I think you know you put a nice bit of hair on his head. He's bald like us, so maybe he's more of a <laughs> of a, of a James McAfee. But I think he'd be an excellent Professor Peacock. He'd be he's like who came to mind first, but I want to see Tom Hiddleston in one of these roles. So, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, Tom Hiddleston's an interesting choice. I, I had a little fun with the suitors in which I limited myself to actors who have played roles uh, in other sort of like iconic uh, speculative fiction shows. And so with professor Peacock, I just had to go with James Spader from the Stargate film, right? Like this is, is mm. a, a professor who studies the past and is just way too handsome for anyone's good. Yeah, that's a great choice. Uh, that is a that is a wonderful choice. He's got the right hair for it, at least. I imagine <laughs> Professor Peacock has just a great, great head of hair. <laughs> yeah, it's actually described to us, I, which I hadn't realized because I don't know char- character descriptions, like physical descriptions, are something that kind of just bounce off of off of me. Uh, but he's got like you know beautiful curly blonde hair, I guess. And James Spader's got you know like young James Spader had kind of this dusty hair. It wasn't curly, but you know doesn't matter. I don't think handsome is really that's what matters. And then with James McAfee, I, I've got uh, an answer that's in the, the you know science fiction TV vein, but also it was hard not to see Scott Patterson in this role. That's Luke from Gilmore Girls, right? Who also is pedestrian and industrious, uh, you know, but also he's, he's quite handsome. Scott Patterson's a fairly handsome guy, and he and Lauren Graham had such great banter there. Not that that's the what you know Olivia and James McAfee have. That's Professor Peacock, but yeah, it was hard not to want a kind of uh, uh, Luke and Lorelai reunion union here as well. Yeah, just for body type, I think I'd go with somebody like Michael Chiklis or something <laughs> like that, uh, who I think has the right the right physical features here. You put him in like, you know, the early commish era. I think he's he's the right guy for the job. Oh, wow. <laughs> the commish. That is not something I've thought about in a long time. That's got to go on an episode of Lower Decks. I need to I need to make Valerie uh, watch uh, watch an episode of the commish. And, uh, you know, speaking of Lower Decks, I think my real answer actually for James McAfee is uh, Connor Trenier, who plays Trip on Star Trek Enterprise, who is, you know, he's smart, he's charming, he's handsome, uh, but not an intellectual, right? And so I think, yeah, fits fits McAfee there. He's not bald because like, I don't know. Yeah, nobody on TV is bald anymore, except Patrick Stewart, <laughs> who's, you know, is, has not aged a day, I don't think. But uh, but he is short and kind of kind of stocky. He's, he's us if we were significantly more handsome. <laughs> well, that's not hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess we just got Stuart Blaine left. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is a tough one for me. Who do you have for that? Right. So here I picked Jason Isaacs uh, as a kind of charming villain. You know, Jason Isaacs probably most famous uh, for playing Lucius Malfoy in the uh, Harry Potter movies. But of course, I was thinking of him more as uh, Captain Lorca from Star Trek Discovery. Yeah, I don't have a, a good one for this. That's an excellent choice and not one I, I would have thought of. Though he's also great in um, the live action Peter Pan movie as both Hook and, and Wendy's father. Uh, they did that casting trick and he's, you know, great in The Patriot, which, you know, at least he's good in that movie, regardless yeah, right. of what you think of it. <laughs> um, I don't have a good option. I mean, I think Daniel Day-Lewis would be a good option for this, but that's probably outside of the budget of this show. And hey, I don't think he's acting anymore. 
<laughs> are you are you envisioning Daniel Day Lewis like basically in his role from the Phantom Thread? Uh, more more a combination of the Phantom Thread and there will be blood oh, right. somewhere in between those two people. <laughs> okay, well in that case, then I'm screaming "Get out!" at Olivia even more more loudly than I was before. <laughs> That's the idea, right? <laughs> All right. Well. Now that we've got our TV show of Peace Chapter 2 cast, I think that's a good time to stop this portion of our discussion. We will be back next time with lots more, as there's a lot more to talk about. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. And yeah, we uh, barely scratched the surface, I think, with the fan casting here. So we hope you'll drop by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or come by the Clay Temple Media subreddit and uh, let us know where we made all the wrong choices about casting these people, <laughs> made the wrong choices about the type of music this show needs. And uh, also just let's flesh it this out. Let's cast some of the, the other characters and, and so on. I guess who would play young Weir is probably actually a pretty important uh, bit of casting that we did not do. And if you aren't already with us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia, please check it out. You can get immediate access to our episodes on At the Mountains of Madness, also dozens of other bonus episodes, and you'll be helping us reach our next goal as well. So next time, as Brandon said, we're going to be back with part two of our chapter two discussion. And so until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.